Welcome to A Better HR Business, the podcast that looks at how HR consultants and HR tech firms grow their businesses and how they help their employers to get the best out of their people. Remember, for show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hello, thanks very much for joining me today. Great to have you along. And I'm delighted to be joined by Doug Straharchik. Doug is the Managing Director at AQR International, a fascinating company focusing particularly on mental strength, but they provide clients of all types with a complete solution around assessment and development of important themes such as mindset, resilience, leadership, teamworking, and personal effectiveness. Like I say, it's a fascinating area. So Doug, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. And whereabouts are you based? I'm based in the northwest of England, in a nice part of northwest of England in Chester. Love it. It's a 2,000-year-old Roman city. Beautiful. I visited there as a kid and I was fascinated by the place. So, yeah, you're lucky to be in a beautiful part of the world. Doug, you've got an amazing story and an amazing business. So can you give us the two-minute summary of your background and your history in HR particularly? Okay. Well, the first thing that people will realize is that I'm older than they think. Um, I started work in 1969, so immediately people will be getting the calculators out to work out what that means. Oh, hang on. I have to ask, was HR called HR back then? Not really. You have welfare officers and personnel officers, and they would have very restricted uh, range of duties. They would often recruit and they might look after welfare or things like that. Got it. I was very quickly, my first appointment was actually as a training officer and then within six months as a training manager, which was actually a bizarre experience when I look back at it, because as a sort of a 20-year-old, I was put in charge of a team of trainers who each had more experience individually than I had lived. <laughs> so, but, you know, in those days, if you were out of a university, you were assumed to be super clever and super effective and here's your job. And uh, so I, t- I started working with a, an organization called the United Drapery Stores, which then employed tens of thousands of people in the UK, moved to DECA, which was a very, in, in those days, a very high tech organization. That was a completely different experience, moving from a traditional industry into what was then a really high tech industry, then went to work for Goodyear. And that exposed me to the HR and personnel practice from other countries then moved to uh, to Wedgwood, Josiah Wedgwood. So I've got a lot of big company experience. But my final period was working with uh, Castrol UK, which is now a part of BP. And then those, those days it was part of Burm Oil. And that was really kind of the pinnacle of my HR experience because it was the re- they gave me some remarkable opportunities. So I, I became head of HR for the UK. Um, uh, but at the same time, they made me head of operations for the UK. Oh. So this all happened on and off over a period of 10 years. But at the end, I, I held both titles. And that gave me a remarkable insight because on the one hand, I'm there to provide advice and support to the line. And on the other hand, I was the line. Uh, and, you know, when you sit and look at a, an issue from those two perspectives, you actually learn a lot about the effectiveness of both approaches. So that's me in a nutshell. Brilliant. And so tell us about the formation of AQR International. What led up to that? 
Well, one of the things that happened is this unique combination of operations and HR uh, meant that we we had a very very successful transformation project. Uh, the company had been was was it was and still is doing well, but at the time there were some gaps in the way that it was performing, and we transformed the company. It came to the attention of virtually every other oil company, a lot of other companies. And basically, I started to get headhunted. Well, I didn't really want to go and work for another company. I thought, well, I've learned something. I think I've got something unique. So I set up a consultancy. And this is where we go into my current life. And initially, for I would guess for the first 10 years, we were almost a traditional consultancy. But one thing that I'd learned about effective HR practice, I mean, in developing a human resource, is it always has to start from the top. It's pointless going and introducing training programs into an organization or doing things with people at the bottom of an organization as a consultant, because the minute you left, it disappeared, it evaporated. If you hadn't built it into the company, that's an issue of culture, and you hadn't got the leadership of the organization truly on board, not just signing checks, but actually walking the talk and supporting what you're doing. And, and sometimes you're developing those leaders to be able to do something different. If that didn't happen, the change didn't happen. And so bit by bit, we began to try to understand what that was. And of course, if you look at the world of people development, for years and years and years of being focused on things like competencies. So when we focus on competencies, we focus on behavior and skills and knowledge. But actually, there's a, a missing component, and that's attitude. You can train somebody to say, you know, to show them what's the right behavior to adopt in most situations. Yeah. You can give them skills, you can give them knowledge, but if they don't have the right attitude, they don't use that, and they don't apply it in the right way, and you may as well never have spent all that money on them. And so as we began to understand this notion of uh, attitude, we began to dig into that, and by good luck, by good fortune, I happened to recruit a young psychologist called Peter Clough oh. uh, into the company, and his passion was this notion of mental toughness. And he was coming from a sports world. He was essentially a sports psychologist, and in the sports world, who at that time were way, way ahead of the occupational world, yeah, yeah, of course. they understood that you could do something with an athlete's mindset that would enable them to succeed spectacularly and that it was at least as effective as doing something with you know, their physical capabilities or their technique. And so in the world of sport, we've always known that you could actually do something with the attitude of a team or an individual that would turn them into a winner. Because we've seen examples of that over the years. I mean, one of the most striking examples, I think, is Andre Agassi. You know, he yeah. was world number one on and off for a period of four years. Yeah. But nobody would ever say he was the best tennis player in the world <laughs> during those four years. And so there's a big lesson that we can learn there. And of course, what Peter then did is he began to say, well, in the world of sport, this is called mental toughness. And he then left us to go and work at the University of Hull. And he made his big research focus understanding what mental mental toughness was. But in all of that time, we worked with Peter because he needed 
um, access to sort of real world data and stuff like that. So we were collaborators in all of this. And then around 2002, well, a little bit earlier than that, the penny dropped. Peter had understood what this concept was. And we now are in a position to be able to, I guess, add the missing link to people in organizational development, which after all is what HR is all about. Absolutely. Wow. Just going back to your point there about the leadership in business, more than just paying checks and things, they need to be driving the whole thing. It always reminds me of a book that was brilliantly titled called The Fish Rots from the Head. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant title. Yeah. An old Russian proverb. Yeah. Is it? There you go. Yeah, right. yeah. I didn't realize. And then the mental toughness thing, I agree, sport tends to lead us and provide so many lessons and so on. And I always think back to someone from not far from your part of the world, David Beckham, he went through hell, if I recall. He got England knocked out of the World Cup or something because he got a red card and then he was the most vilified man across the country and then he sort of bounces back. So well, I love all those sort of stories of, of mental toughness and then coming through to the other side and, and, and showing peak performance. How did you turn these lessons, academic theories and so on into a viable business? Well, once we understood what mental toughness was and Mental toughness is a concept, so it's a personality trait. That's really interesting because we're very familiar with personality and personality models and personality measures. But as I said before, they're nearly all behavioural. They're all about how we act when things happen. Whereas mental toughness is about how we think, how we respond mentally when things happen. And we never, ever look at that. You know, if you were to go to, and we have done this, we've done this in collaboration with careers organisations, if you go to employers and say, how do you recruit people? And they all say, oh, qualifications, experience, interview. And then you say, 12 months on, what makes a good employee? The answer is always attitude. Uh, yeah. And then you say, well, how did you assess for attitude when you recruit them? Oh, no, we didn't. And, and, you know, there's an old adage that CIPD once used to use and that most people are recruited on the basis of their qualifications but they're fired because of their attitude and that's the missing thing we know we've always known that this concept of attitude your mental approach to things matters in fact we've you know it, the idea is at least two and a half thousand years old i mean what people don't realize is plato identified fortitude as one of the four virtues and the four virtues are still part of Western philosophy today. And so he, he understood that it was important, but we just never knew how to describe it, how to assess it, and how to use it. And that's the breakthrough. Peter Clough was able to identify that it had four components, and we were then able to identify that each of those components had two subcomponents. So once we got to that level of um, detail, we were able to construct psychometric measures. Then we were able to use those psychometric measures to dig deeper, to understand what each of those eight factors meant. And we've got ourselves into a position now where it's a very complex idea, but we've got a very accessible way of approaching it. We can put the concept into the hands of any HR manager, any trainer, any coach, any line manager in the world, and they can use it. And so you've turned it into a psychometrics assessment and then I assume some training programs that go with that? Yeah, so it's, it's yes, you're right. But it's, it's almost an approach. So we were able to use a psychometric measure to assess mental toughness. 
And the reason why it's really important to use a psychometric measure is when we use behavioral measures, we can actually see behavior. So I can actually see whether you're an introvert or an, or an extrovert. What I can't see is what's going on in your head. And moreover, you can't see what's going on in your own head. When things are happening and something brings you to a grinding halt, you just know you've come to a grinding halt. But with this measure and the concept, we can now say, well, actually, we know the kind of things that are happening inside your head. Let's do a check to see which of those are important. And now we, we've got that capability. We're capable of saying, well, you've got some, um, I, I, I hate the word strengths and weaknesses, but I'll use that for mm. the moment. You've got some strengths and weaknesses in the way that you mentally approach things. Now that we know where there are some issues, we can direct interventions. And the curious thing about the interventions is just about any decent trainer on the planet already knows the interventions. So we're not having to invent new approaches. What we're really doing is saying, understand what you're working with. Don't just throw training at people and hope some of it sticks. Here we've got a model or a concept that helps you to, to focus a little bit yeah, more yeah, on yeah. what the real need is. And then because it's a normative measure and it is very high quality, you can actually measure what's happened afterwards. And that's taken us into one of the things, it's, it's a real beef for me in, in HR, the notion of evidence-based practice. You know, we can measure difference. We can measure if you've tried an approach, did it work? Did it make a difference? And it's introducing something that never appears in HR practice, and that's causality. You know, we're very fond of saying, I ran a training course for 15 managers and look at the difference it made. How do you know that it was what you did that made that difference? It could have been the lunch you served at the course. <laughs> uh, well, it could be a whole host of things. You know, famously, I mean, there was uh, ICI was once, uh, once Britain's biggest company. It got law plaudits for an amazing level of profits. But it was nothing to do with what anybody inside the company did. It was to do with the pound-dollar exchange rate. It suddenly boosted the profits. So, you know, there were people going around claiming it was the management team, blah, blah, blah. There's nothing to do with any of that. Can I um, pause you for a second? So you've got these concepts and you've got a model, these learnings that pull back to causality. But from a business perspective, and for people listening, I'm thinking they may have also discovered an approach, whatever it is in the world of HR, whether that's an employee attraction retention system or a model yeah, yeah. or a, learn, a diversity inclusion approach. How do you take a broad concept and then boil it down, package it up, make it understandable and concrete for an end client? How do you then turn something sellable? Oh, well, okay. So I need to go step back, uh, take a step back, because one of the benefits of working with Professor Peter Clough is we actually now work with probably around 30 or 40 academics. We also work with a lot of really progressive practitioners. I mean, these are people, genuinely heads of HR in big organizations who kind of get what we do and understand the frailties of HR practice. And we get these people to collaborate. So we, we collaborate so that we make sure that what we are developing has got sound psychological theory or sound science behind it. And we work with the practitioners to translate it into uh, programs and materials that they know they can put their hands on and use and not just them 
you know, because they could tend to be cleverer than the average person, but they can actually use with Mr. and Mrs. Ordinary person. So, you know, what we've been doing is not sitting here saying, oh, we've worked it all out. We are consulting with people right, left and centre to make sure on the one hand, what we're talking about isn't made up science, isn't a fad. And, you know, the world of HR is plagued by fadism. <laughs> and that what we've got actually can make a difference. The advantage of that is there are now well over 200 peer-reviewed research papers on the mental toughness concept and the mental toughness questionnaire. Every single one of those papers is independent of AQR. And we're quite unique in that nice. regard because a lot of other test publishers, when they present their research, it's their research. Yeah, yeah. Every single piece of our research is independent of AQR. So it's the extreme opposite of the tobacco industry producing a report that says, ah, oh, smoking's fine. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Well, like, you know, that's another sort of, I suppose, fundamental weakness uh, in, in HR. People produce their own evidence and often it's not substantial. So that's a strong selling point. You've got 200 peer review independent assessments of the, the model and the approach. That's a, a really strong selling point. How do you then roll that up into something that you then sell? Well, what we do is we sense the approach, the approach I described before. So people need to understand how it would work, and then they want to know yeah, what yeah. do they need to do to make it work. So the most important component of that is generally the, the, the questionnaire, the mental toughness questionnaire. And you know, people will often pilot it, trial it in small quantities, but some people are very bold. They go and take it to whole organizations, you know, test two, 3,000 people. The advantage of the questionnaire is you can get information about individuals, but you can also aggregate it data. So, for instance, there are organizations that we work with that will have country uh, divisions. So you can test people right across the globe, and then you can aggregate the data for each country and say well look at the different patterns of mental toughness does that explain differences in performance and nearly always it does because if i come back to the research if i distill all the research down to uh, its absolute core elements there are four things that consistently emerge there's a correlation between mental toughness your attitude and your performance on average your mental toughness explains 25% wow. of the variation in performance. So 25% of the difference in performance between individuals can be explained by their mental toughness. There is no other factor that is as significant. But that's just confirming that we've always known yeah, that especially attitude in these times, important. in the whole global uh, pandemic, yeah. mental toughness has, has yeah. really, um, jumped to the fore, hasn't it? Yeah. And the second uh, of the four big factors is well-being and mental health. And again, the research is absolutely rock solid. There's a correlation with being able to deal with anxiety, depression, stress, suicidality, mm. and fully enough, sleep. So we've been well, this, most of that work has been with the University of Basel in Switzerland. They've carried out all of these studies and they, they can demonstrate this link. The interesting thing is a mentally tough individual, for instance, is still likely to be anxious, depressed. They just manage it better. And so they don't <coughs> actually spiral downwards. 
There's a very, very important piece of research that came out on December the 31st, just two months ago. I mean, who reads anything on December the 31st on New Year's Eve? But <laughs> obviously I do. And what it did, they used the mental toughness questionnaire on about, just about 750 people in Yorkshire. And they got them to complete a questionnaire on their anxiety, their depression, the level of depression, the level of stress. And they found that the mentally tough, this is in the middle of COVID, it was a COVID study, that the mentally tough were dealing with COVID and all the pressures that it brings perfectly well. They weren't particularly stressed, depressed, and so on. The mentally sensitive were getting progressively more and more stressed, anxious, and depressed. So when we read in the papers that, you know, COVID has made most people stressed, in general, that's true. Specifically, it's not true. And again, that's one of the, the, the you know, problems in looking at this sort of stuff. People will talk in generalities, but actually you need to drill down a bit because if you have some people who are not particularly being on their knees as a result of COVID, what we should be doing is learning from, well, what is it that they're doing that we can transfer to those who are now flat on their back? Were there any socioeconomic factors involved in that? So people in big houses versus little houses, stuff like that, because obviously that would have an impact. Uh, the, I don't think the, the research dug, dug down that much in this particular study, but you've asked a really, really good question because one of the biggest applications worldwide is on the difference in the, between the sexes and about discrimination against women. At one level, the, the, one of the great things about the mental toughness concept is that the research shows that the mental toughness patterns for males and females in general are virtually identical. Now, that's a very positive message. So what that's saying is there, is there are no grounds for believing that women respond more or less well mentally than males to any situation. That's saying we're all equal. And that's a, that's a really important piece of information. But what we actually see in some organizations when we go in, we do see differences between males and females. And when we dig in, it's a cultural thing. It's, you know, you will see people discriminating against females. And it'll either be conscious, but more often it's subconscious. It's simply males not realizing that, you know, the way that they're behaving is inadvertently blocking the contribution right. of females. Yeah. But, you know, that's, that'll take, that takes time because, you know, you go back 40 or 50 years. I mean, that, that example I gave you earlier about me getting appointed over half a dozen trainers who were all vastly more experienced than me, every single one of those was a female. And I look back and I think, you know, we just wouldn't do that now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's been a part of our culture to believe that women – should be treated differently to men that is beginning to evaporate but we still see the remnants of that well hopefully it continues to improve but it's a long way to go that's for sure can i ask about the first few clients you got how did you get them and what kind of businesses were they right so the first few clients were well i guess when you're doing anything i mean you come up with a new idea we did get a lot of people saying go and work go away right. never heard of it <laughs> stop trying trying to sell me snake oil how did that feel um, yeah. Well, it, it was hard, but you know, you need a degree of mental toughness yeah. to keep going. You really believe in what you're doing and you know that 
you've got something that's valuable, you keep going. And I was fortunate in that um, we were involved in a in a government program um, in that uh, it went in the first four years after we set up, and it was to do with helping smaller organisations um, start up. And so we got we were involved in hundreds of startups, and we were able to use our ideas and our in those days kind of a a primitive comparatively primitive psychometric measure in a lot of that work and then some bigger and bigger organizations came on board um, i had a background through castrol in automotive so some of the big automotive uh, suppliers came on board and then we got a big breakthrough when the custom uk customs and excise came on board and they gave us a contract to assess 700 senior managers in preparation for a big change that was coming through and they allowed us to bring to use to incorporate the mental toughness concept and the mental yeah, toughness great. questionnaire into oh, that well program done. and we we just never looked back the interesting thing is your question's a good one because we've noticed there have been two points in our history where there's been a big upsurge one was 2008 2009 the financial crisis what happened then is a lot of organizations found themselves struggling. They, they looked at their traditional solutions, the traditional things they'd done, it wasn't working for them. So a lot began to look for a new solution and a lot began to find us. That's happening now say, yeah. as well with COVID. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before we get onto the, the COVID side of things, you, you mentioned you had a background in the automotive industry and therefore you picked up some clients in the first yeah. place. How did you actually do that? Did you pick up the phone to your old boss? For people listening, they have come from the corporate world and they're either starting out or they've got a business going and they think, oh, I should do the same. What's your advice to them? Well, it, it's essentially about networking. I mean, today we would use social media for some aspects of that. But in those days, you would um, network. And I, I was fortunate to work for Burma Oil was a big company. They had 50,000 employees. And so you got to meet your equivalents from all over the place and there'll be people joining and leaving. And one of the uh, most impressive people that I ever came across was a guy called John Sharpley, who had taken a small business and turned it into a global business within the Burma Group. And then he left to become the chief executive of Champion Sparkplug, which I think everybody knows that name. And almost the first thing he did was he got hold of me because by then I'd... I started my business and said, come in and help me do in Champion Spark Plug what you did in Castro. And it was um, a hugely successful program. So successful that the BBC did a feature on it. And uh, they got a guy, uh, a very famous guy called Professor John Adair to come on and comment on the wow. program. And we were very pleased to hear him describe it as unique and highly wow. effective. And so... You know, bit by bit, and then people who worked at Champion, they kind of got headhunted because, um, you know, obviously it's a very successful company. So one went to um, an airbag manufacturer, another one went to the biggest component manufacturer, and we just went, we just spread <laughs> virally, you know. Yeah. To talk about virus spreading virally is not probably the, <laughs> the coolest yeah. thing to say at the moment, but that's how it happened. So networking is critical. 
Yeah. And so those people moved the alumni of, let's say of the champion business. And did you keep in touch or did they just come back to you? What did you do there? I mean, both, both. I mean, networking by its nature is you do your best to try and keep in touch. In those days it was harder because, um, it was the early days of the internet. You, yeah. It took 10 minutes to just, just you know, to download <laughs> a message, you know. But, uh, um, you know, by phone, you'd, you'd meet people at conferences. You know, conferences used to be very much more significant events. The number of times you'd go to a conference and never go to any of the sessions. You spent yeah. all your time in the lobby talking yeah. to, your, to your mates and your contacts and meeting other people. As I say, social media's re- replaced yeah. a lot of that now. And I know your business has evolved as the internet has evolved. Therefore, what do you do differently these days on, on the marketing and business development side of things? Well, we, we have three things. One is we've, we now operate in about 80 countries. Yeah. Um, and that's been a challenge for us because when we first looked at that, we worked out that the cost of actually setting up in every country was prohibitive. And yet we've, we've been approached by virtually every one of our potential competitors, by venture capitalists, but that meant losing complete control of what we do. So we've decided to grow through a partnership model. So we find partners in each of the territories who are like-minded, who are prepared to put what we do at the heart of our work and see the potential for growth. And that's, that's one aspect. So, and then together, we do two things. We run lots and lots of webinars and lots of podcasts. I saw that. And, yeah. and you know, typically I run three webinars a week somewhere in the world. It's that level of activity. But we also do a lot of social media mainly through LinkedIn, some of it through Facebook, depending on the country. And in combination, that begins to create a lot of awareness, a lot of interest. And it's, you know, you see the inquiries and the business sort of come dripping. It's like the looking at a, a pipeline and you see the business coming dripping out of the end of pipeline. But you have to put a lot of effort into the start of the pipeline. Yeah, I, I think back to the Jim Collins concept of the flywheel. yes. Um, it, it's very hard to get going in the beginning, but once you've got that momentum, it, it continues to produce. You mentioned you're doing a lot more on social media, i.e. LinkedIn and a bit of Facebook. What do you mean by that? Are they just organic posts? Are they ads that you're running? What do you do? Well, um, with LinkedIn, what we've learned is content matters. You know, unfortunately, LinkedIn is kind of, um, it's not quite as good as it used to be, but it's still pretty good. Uh, you still get posts of what people had for the dinner or them uh, <laughs> holding a certificate. Well, that's that's really for uh, Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. But what people do value is content. So if we put out a little post, you know, I've, I've, I mentioned something earlier about what we discovered in the you know, mental toughness and the sexes. So we put out a series of posts about that. And I get thousands of people responding to that. Wow. So the more that you put out content that people think is interesting and valuable, the better the the response. If you put out trivial stuff, you get what you deserve, really. Yeah. I do have very nice breakfasts, so, you know, I could could post about that. Do you run any ads on LinkedIn or Facebook? No, no. We tried that at one time. I, I think it makes LinkedIn rich. It didn't make us rich. Yeah. You're not the first to say that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Jim Collins uh, because um, I'm a big fan of Jim Collins. And in the, if you look at his book, he identifies several factors 
that all high, very successful organizations have adopted. You've mentioned one of them. One of the others is hardiness. And if you look at what his description of hardiness is, it's three quarters of what we're talking about. So in a sense, he wouldn't have known about mental toughness when he wrote the book. I think he, he, I think, I would hope that he'd be um, talking about mental toughness if he wrote that book now. But he was already alluding to the importance of the concept we're talking about. Yeah. So what's your advice when it comes to growing a successful HR-related business? I would say for the future, we are beginning to see a growing interest in genuine evidence-based practice. So, for instance, I see that um, there's a lot of psychometric measures, for instance. So we're concerned about psychometric measures, and it's estimated that there are about 500 personality measures available in the UK, um, of which less than 50 are, are considered reliable and valid sure and yet people will still go out and and sell them and people will go out and buy them there is a need for people to understand what works and what doesn't work and why it works so i see other organizations beginning to to talk about this because it's part of the evolution you know 50 or 60 years ago simply seeing a, a psychometric measure would intrigue people and they'd buy anything (laughs) but there is actually there are good ones and there are bad ones. And, you know, we're fortunate. We, we think we're at the good end of the scale. And I think in the end, people will begin to understand it's not, you shouldn't be spending money on something that isn't actually going to produce you any results. Yeah. So how do you do that? If there are, let's say, 500 different options out there, how do you get people to choose you? Well, that's where the uh, webinars and the posts come in because uh. – they're mainly informative. They're mainly educating somebody. You know, if I if I went into an HR uh, office and said, right, hang on, uh, you've got it all wrong so far. I'm going to show you the, what you should be doing. They'd probably throw me out. But by putting out these posts and putting out webinars and kind of getting people to come on board and, and gently challenging them and, you know, bringing to their attention the things they should be looking at, um, that's you know we're on a mission to kind yeah. of educate the world as well as get people to come to us yeah. because we've got something that we know works. Plus, you've got this army of uh, partners out there, consulting firms, I guess, that Absolutely. are spreading the word with you. Yeah. If you were to do it all, do it all again, would you go the same approach of having partners in in the different countries? Definitely, I'm pleased we've done it the way we've done it. Right. I think if we would have had a lot of money ourselves, you know, millions to be able to launch the business, we might have tried a different route. But I noticed that Deloitte at the end of last year put out um, a paper on how they saw the future of business. And what they say is, what they see is that businesses will have smaller and smaller core teams, but they will work more and more in association with partners. And then there'll be a level of what they would call associates, that people who who they buy in you know, on almost a daily or a weekly basis to attend to special things. And then there'll be the uh, the people that are hired for you know, campaigns and stuff like that. And so, so we're already there. That's really the way we're operating. So we were quite pleased to read that that's the future of the way businesses will operate. I hope they had a picture of you on the cover. <laughs> well, I'll suggest it to them. <laughs> yeah. 
You mentioned when we we're chatting previously about the fact that you've done lots of work with business schools over the years. Yeah. And I'm curious, I, was gonna, I wanted to ask you about what does the future hold for HR and the world of work and what should listeners do about that? And I'm thinking, what can you incorporate from that business school evolution and you know, some of the concepts around HR? What are your thoughts on the future of HR? Well, I, th- I think the future of HR is going to be very different. I spoke at a big conference in Kansas about three, four years ago. It was a coaching conference. And I remember the keynote speaker standing up and it was the big, big thing. There was about 800 people in a room, all coaches. And she was asked to address the future of coaching. And she stood up and she just said two sentences. Said, coaching has a future, coaches don't. And I thought, wow, that is really perceptive. Because all of these people were self-employed coaches who were running their own little coaching practices. But what we've already seen now is once we understand that coaching is a skill and an approach, organizations are beginning to bring coaching in-house. They're training their managers to be coaches as well as managers. And so that's affecting the coaching industry significantly. I think something similar will happen in HR because HR is a, a composite of lots of things. There's personnel administration or HR admin, and that's maintaining records and collecting increasingly collecting big data about what's happening in in an organization that's a very technical thing you could see that being allied with the finance department in an organization where other data is being collected you look at um, the industrial relations side well already in america we're beginning to see software that you can plug a problem into and it'll come out with solutions so can even the, the employer relations or the industrial relations side be um, attended to by technology? The suspicion is it can. And then if you look at uh, development activity or recruitment activity, recruitment is already heavily dominated by technology. There's all sorts of uh, things going on there. So you know, if you kind of look at it and say, well, look at all these changes, you know, people development, who's actually responsible for people development? It's the line manager. Who's actually responsible for the motivation of of people? It's the line manager. So who is the HR manager? It's not HR as we know it. It's the line manager. So if you were to look at what's happening in the world of coaching and extrapolate it to the world of HR, what you might see is that we are getting better and better line managers who are, in fact, also equipped to be their own HR managers for a number of aspects of HR. And if technology can uh, sort out some of the other aspects, then the idea of going to HR and saying, I want to look at the attendance figures for my department, can you produce that information for me? Well, they can probably press a, a, a key on the, on the keyboard and it flashes up on screen. So I think technology and the development of managers and leaders generally will have an impact on the HR profession. I'm not suggesting for a minute that HR is not uh, an important role or an important activity. I think it's got a very important position to play in the strategic development of any organization. But I'm already seeing people being appointed to the strategic HR role, the HR director's role, who come from a line background. Yeah, yeah, you see that. Yeah. So, you know, I think there is a future. There definitely is a future. 
but it is a very different future. And people, I think, need to be aware of that. I might interrupt you there, Doug. So people listening to this, if you're a consultant in the HR industry, don't freak out. No. <laughs> this isn't happening tomorrow. I, I agree. I think it's something that's it's a continual evolution. We are yeah. naturally going to see line managers develop and improve their skills. But I think, uh, A, there's still plenty of work for consulting firms in the HR space. But B, I agree absolutely that you need to be moving more and more up that strategic ladder rather than just looking at transactional stuff, because that will gradually get automated uh, and systematized over time. And that will take away that kind of work. The employee handbook is the classic example for, for the entry consulting business. I'll go and write your handbook. Well, there is software that could do that for you. So what can you do for a business that's perhaps more strategic? Is that a fair summary? I think so. And I don't think people in the world of consulting should be worried if they are prepared to step back and see the bigger picture. And, uh, you know, I guess 25, 30 years ago when we were operating as consultants, what we would see is people would be going around and offering a proposition. I'm an expert in problem solving. I'm an expert in communications. That's not what clients want. They want a solution. And you were alluding to the approach, you know, what is it that we offer uh, organizations when we talk about mental toughness? We are, that's what we're offering. We're offering an approach, a, solu- a broad solution that attends to some important areas in their organization. If, if a consultant can offer solutions that integrate with everything else the, the organization does, they're going to be very successful because that's what you get, that's what they're after, the, and that's what you can sell. Absolutely. And yes, the coronavirus has brought to the fore mental toughness, that concept, and health and well being, and so on. But even so, if different time, different situation, mental toughness is just crucial for any business and for any person, any team. I can absolutely see the links to business performance, customer Mm. satisfaction, profitability, all these things are connected. So I love what you're doing. Doug, I can only wish you all the best with this. If people want to learn more about what you're doing, what should they do next? Well, we've got a website. It's www.aqr.co.uk. Or if somebody wants to contact me directly, it's Doug. D-O-U-G at aqr.co.uk. And, you know, I'd be delighted to respond to any inquiries and any interest. Excellent. Uh, Well, we'll have those links in the show notes. But again, Doug, thank you very much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it too. Thanks for joining us today on A Better HR Business, the podcast that explores the world of HR consulting and HR tech businesses. For show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe and share the show with any friends who are busy growing a HR business. Thanks and see you next time.